Slava Bogu, Minyazavut Scott, Reini, Dobre Utra, Yajavu Vakievie, I ja robotaju submissionerum. Mui ochen radi buit svami svodnya. Praise the Lord. Good morning. My name is Scott Rainey. I live in Kiev, Ukraine, and work as a missionary. Uh, it is very, very good for us to be with you today. Uh, thank you, Pastor Brady, uh, for the challenging introduction. And what a blessing to uh, be with you today and to worship. I thoroughly enjoyed our time of worship this morning with. Uh, the worship team, and thank God for what he's doing. It is a real blessing to be here at Grace Point this morning. I, I can't imagine another place on our final Sunday of deputation to be. This is just like perfect for us as we're here with our family. This is our family church. This is where we grew up. Uh, as I look around the congregation, there were people who have been examples to us and taught us in Sunday school, and uh, this, is, this is where we uh, feel one of our most comfortable places for us. Uh, thank you for your prayers for us. As missionaries in the Church of Nazarene, every two years we have to go on what's called deputation for three months. Basically means we come back to the United States and we share in, for three months in churches across the United States. Today is our last Sunday of 12 weeks, and on Wednesday we return to Kiev. In the last three months, we have uh, preached in 31 churches went through 22 states, drove 12,583 miles, and slept in 42 different beds. Uh, if, you're, if you follow us on Facebook at all, you probably think we've been on three months of vacation uh, because we put on all the fun things we do as we travel along these different places and we take a half day. But uh, one person emailed me and said, it looks like you've been on vacation for three months. I said, well, come along with us for a while. It won't feel much like vacation. Uh, but we have had an incredible summer of uh, meeting new people and sharing what God is doing in the CIS. And we thank the Lord that we're ending it here today. Uh, we serve in what's called the CIS, which stands for the Commonwealth of Independent States. It represents 12 countries that used to be a part of the Soviet Union. The Church of Nazarene is currently in six of those countries. We're in Russia. Ukraine, Moldova, Armenia, Kazakhstan, and then a sixth country that we say is creative access country number two, uh, which means it's a country that we can't name as we're recording these, and sometimes they go on the Internet. And so this is uh, a country where we're serving that uh, only privately I can tell you if you're interested in knowing that country. I'll share a story from that country this morning. I want to thank you for your prayers for us as we live in Kiev, Ukraine, and over the last uh, two years, much has happened, as you know from the news in Ukraine, and we can continue to have a war in the eastern side of Ukraine, which is about 500 miles from where we live, um, and so we feel safe uh, today and, and know that we're where we're supposed to be. I've always said, uh, since we left, uh, and it meant so much to me, my mother-in-law actually said it to me first, but she said, uh, you're always safest when you're in the center of God's will. And I know that if I'm in Kiev and that's where God wants us, we're safe. If we're in Houston or any other city and that's not where God wants us, we're not safe. And so thank you for your prayers. God is helping us and the church is growing and developing. I told you we're in six countries. Next year, the Lord willing, we have plans and, and preparations completely in place to move into our seventh country in the CIS. We're going to be going into Belarus uh, in 2016. And so... Uh, continue to pray for us as we share 
uh, the good news uh, in the CIS. I also want to say thank you for your faithfulness to the World Evangelism Fund. Uh, this, as a Nazarene, uh, we don't have to, as missionaries, we don't have to come back and try to raise our support. Uh, today is not about money. Today is about what God is already doing. And it's because of churches like Grace Point that faithfully pay their World Evangelism Fund that enables us to go over there and not worry about finances and to serve Him and do what we need to do. And when we come back, we simply share what God is doing and say thank you uh, for what you're doing to help us to share the gospel, to be partners with us in sharing the gospel in the CIS. Recently, I read a story about a man named Joshua Chamberlain. There may be a handful of people who, have, who might recognize the name Joshua Chamberlain here. Uh, I did not when I first read it, and it took me reading a little bit more to understand who he was. Uh, but if you are a big Civil War buff, the name Joshua Chamberlain might ring a bell to you. Joshua Chamberlain was a Union Army officer in 1863, and he was responsible for a small group of soldiers, volunteer soldiers actually, about 300 volunteer soldiers were under his command. And Joshua Chamberlain served in a small little city in a northern state. And during 1863, this Confederate army was winning a lot of battles, one after another after another, and they were working their way north. And it was a very difficult time for the Union. And they came all the way into the northern state of Pennsylvania and came to a small little city that in 1863 very few people in the United States of America had ever heard of. But today, everyone in here has heard of the name of the city, Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Joshua Chamberlain was the Union Army officer in the small little town of Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. He had 300 soldiers. The Confederate Army had come north into that city, and there were about 4,000 Confederate soldiers that were coming against Joshua Chamberlain's army. Uh, Joshua Chamberlain uh, didn't know what to do in the situation, 300 against 4,000. And so he sent out some troops into the surrounding areas and said, Please send your help to us. We're going to die. We have no chance against 4,000 troops. And nobody came. And for some reason, history doesn't explain why, but the southern troops would come against Joshua Chamberlain's army and they would attack and then they would withdraw. And they did it four times. They would attack and withdraw. Joshua Chamberlain's army was reduced from 300 soldiers to just 80 soldiers. 80 soldiers against approximately 4,000 southern troops. And in that moment, Joshua Chamberlain had to make a decision. Was he going to do what most people would do, which was raise a white flag and surrender, 80 against 4,000, and become a southern uh, prisoner of war? Or would he turn like others would do, and run away from the 4,000 as quickly as he could with his 80 troops. But in that moment, Joshua Chamberlain did something very, very unique. He turned around and he looked at his 80 troops, and he said, I'm not about to die with a bullet in my back. And he turned back around, and he looked toward those 4,000 troops, and he raised his sword, and he said, charge. And I cannot picture how it happened. But on that day, July 2nd of 1863, 80 troops took 4,000 prisoners. It was such an overwhelming victory with insurmountable odds. 
that the President of the United States at the time made his journey to Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, Abraham Lincoln, and gave a speech that lasted about four minutes that is a speech that many of us can quote at least part of or all of, the Gettysburg Address. Sometimes I feel like the church feels a little bit like the 300 or the 80 troops of Joshua Chamberlain's army. Sometimes it feels like the world is attacking us and coming in and and beating us down as Christians, and we have a decision to make. Are we going to back into a defensive posture and just try to maintain and make sure we don't lose somebody that's already here? Or are we going to step forward in an offensive move and say, charge? I believe that the church is called to be an offensive people, a people who go into the world, into dark places. I want to remind you that darkness cannot overtake the light. If you have a lighted room, darkness can't come in and make it dark. The, only, the opposite occurs. When it's a dark room, if you have light and you go into a dark room, lightness takes over the dark. The church is called to carry the light of Jesus into dark places in this world. We're to go into those dark places with the light of Jesus and invade those places. I want to read for you this morning a passage from 1 Samuel chapter 14. It's probably a passage that many of you have read through uh, every year for years as a Christian in your devotional time, but maybe you've not slowed down to really look at what happened in this passage. 1 Samuel chapter 14 Verses 1 through 15. It'll be on the screen before you. Uh, It's a story about Jonathan and his father, uh, King Saul. King Saul, the first king of Israel, and his son Jonathan. Here's what it says. One day, Jonathan, son of Saul, said to his young armor bearer, Come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree in Migrod. With him were about 600 men, among whom was Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod. He was the son of Ichabod's brother Ahitub, son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh. No one was aware that Jonathan had left. On each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Bozes and the other Sene. One cliff stood to the north toward Michmash, the other to the south toward Geba. Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, Come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Do all that you have in mind, his armor bearer said. Go ahead, I'm with you, heart and soul. Jonathan said, Come on then. We will cross over toward them and let them see us. If they say to us, Wait there until we come to you. We will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, we will climb up because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they were hiding in. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, come up to us and we'll teach you a lesson. So Jonathan and his armor bearer climbed up. Uh, Jonathan said to his armor bearer, climb up after me. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet with his armor bearer right behind him. 
The Philistines fell before Jonathan, and his armor-bearer followed and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor-bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about a half an acre. Then panic struck the whole army, those in the camp and field, and those in the outposts and raiding parties, and the ground shook. It was a panic sent by God. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would add your blessing to the reading of your word today. Holy Spirit, would you come and move in amongst us, down each pew and in each heart, and speak to us today, O God, a fresh and new challenge for us, your church, your children, your people. It's in the wonderful name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Can you picture the scene from 1 Samuel 14? It's a really interesting scene, an interesting picture, and you can really contrast two things that are happening. King Saul, the first king of Israel, and his son, Jonathan. They could not have been more different on that particular day. King Saul was the king of Israel, and it says that he was on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree, like a shade tree, and he was surrounded by 600 men. These 600 men would not have just been any men. These would have been the top, strongest, most elite army of Israel. These would have been the top guys of Israel to defend their king. They were, he was surrounded by 600. Across that cliff that we just heard about, there were 20. He had 600 men surrounded by them. And I can picture King Saul that day under a shade tree with a handful of sunflower seeds eating and spitting them out, relaxed and comfortable. I can almost picture the lowest ranking army officer fanning him and him having no desire to do anything that day except relax, kick back, and enjoy. God had said to Israel, I'm giving you this land of Canaan. Go and take it. And King David on that day, with 600 men and 20 men across the way, had no intention of picking a fight with the enemy. He only wanted to pick pomegranates from a shade tree. He was relaxed and comfortable. Jonathan could not have been more different. His son, Jonathan, says to his young armor bearer, who would have probably been 14 years old at the time, he says to this 14-year-old, come with me, let's sneak away and not tell my dad and the 600 men who are strong around him, and let's go over and let's pick a fight with those 20 Philistine men across that cliff. And we're going to have to fight to the death. In other words, either all 20 of them die or you and I die. Let's go and do this. And here was Jonathan's plan. I would say what Jonathan did that day was absolutely crazy. But I would say that if God is in it and God is behind it and leading it, it is sanctified crazy. But what Jonathan did was, was, in all human ways, the stupidest, the dumbest military strategy ever given. And here's what he did. He said, let's, you and I go, 14-year-old and me, the two of us, we're going to fight to the death against those 20 Philistine soldiers across the way. And here's our plan. We'll go up to the edge of our cliff and we'll reveal ourselves to them. When they see us, if they say to us, come up to us, we'll take that as a sign that God has given them into our hands, and we'll climb across those cliffs and fight them to the death. I have to tell you, 
that if I had been there that day in Jonathan's shoes, I would have done it a lot different. Uh, I would not have uh, said, let's reveal ourselves to them. I would have said, let's wait until it gets to be night, really, really dark, and let's crawl across this, uh, this valley into this, uh, and up the cliff, and let's kill as many of those 20 as we can while they're sleeping. Because then it might be 10 against 2, and we'll have a, a chance, a fighting chance. That's not what Jonathan did. He came to the edge of the cliff, and they did some kind of thing to show themselves to the Philistines. Hey, we're over here. See us? We're not hiding. And he said, if they say to us, come up to us, we'll take that as a sign that God has given them into our hands. Um, I would have had a different sign. I would have said, if ten of them fall off the cliff and die, that will be our sign that God has given them into our hands. That's not the sign, he said. He said, if, God's, if they say to us, climb up to us, we'll take that as a sign. Uh, my wife and I had the privilege of going to Israel uh, last November. It had always been a dream of mine to go, and God gave us the opportunity, and we went. And it was an amazing trip. I had studied the geography and things about it in, in uh, seminary, and I, I've read my Bible since I was a little boy. Uh, but I wasn't prepared for what I saw. We spent a lot of our time in the southern part of Israel, which southern Israel is a complete and total desert. In the last two weeks, we had to drive through uh, Arizona and Nevada into California, and that's a desert. If you've ever been over there, that's a real desert, Uh, but there's bushes and trees and things along the way in that desert. In southern Israel, there is nothing. It is nothing but rocks and dirt and cliffs it's a horrible place. I cannot imagine living in southern Israel. I cannot fathom how they did it. The, there's so little rain, I don't know how they survived. But the Israelites lived in southern Israel, Beersheba's in southern Israel. And it's nothing but rocks and dirt. It's unbelievable. What I found was that the people of Israel would always build their cities on the top of hills. They call them tells, like Tel Aviv is the hill of Aviv. So when they do the archaeological digs today, they dig from the tells. And so they dig down through the mountain to see the history of the world as they go deeper and deeper into the mountain. Well, they built their, their cities on the hills for one reason, and it was because of the military. If you're going to be in a place that's safe, you want to be on the top of a hill because then when an army is coming against you, you can see them and you're ready for them. And then when you fight, you fight downhill. It's a lot better to fight down the momentum rather than fighting up a hill. So here's Jonathan and his young armor bearer. They reveal themselves to the Philistine, 20 Philistine soldiers. The Philistine soldiers say, come up to us. And they climb down the cliff across the valley, climb up the cliff, and they have to fight the Philistines from the lower position fighting up. Now, one more thing. I've, I've not done any mountain climbing. I, uh, I like my feet to be on the ground. But I've seen video of, of people, and you have too, that mountain climb. And when they climb, they will swing over on the side of a mountain, on the side of a rock face, and they will grab something that is very, very small sometimes, like uh, maybe a centimeter or two centimeters that's hanging off the cliff, and they'll grab it with just their fingertips. And they swing back and forth and do this up a hill. 
And I've been told that if you climb like that for about an hour, your arm can be so tired from the grip that your hand might actually feel a little bit like it's stuck in place. And you would have to almost work it out to get it out. So Jonathan and his young armor bearer reveal themselves to the Philistines. The Philistines say, come up to us and we'll teach you a lesson. I don't know if you saw it, but it says that they used their hands and their feet to climb. This was not a slow decline into a valley and a slow incline into battle. This was a cliff. They had to use their hands and their feet to get down. And they crossed a valley and climbed up a rock face, a cliff, to get into the battle. And I have to say that the Philistine, 20 Philistine soldiers probably didn't say, guys, you've been climbing for an hour. I'm sure you're tired. Why don't you rest for a little while? And then we'll fight to the death. No, they didn't say that. I am sure that Jonathan and his young armor bearer had to start fighting from their knees. What Jonathan and his young armor bearer did was absolutely crazy. But it was sanctified crazy in boldness and courage for what God had called them to do. I have a question for us this morning. When did the church start to believe that Jesus Christ died on a rugged cross and shed his blood and died that horrible death so that you and I would be comfortable and safe until the day we die? Somehow we've begun to think in the church that the reason that Jesus Christ died on that cross was so that we would be safe and comfortable until the day that we die. I don't believe that Jesus died so that you and I would be safe. I believe Jesus gave his blood so that you and I would be dangerous. I believe God wants us to be a dangerous people, a risk-taking people, who go into dark places. I want to remind you that, that we are called to take back land that has been taken from the enemy. You, you remember the Bible calls Satan a thief. It means he stole something that rightfully belonged to God. He's a thief. And so what the church is supposed to do is go into enemy territory and take back what rightfully belongs to God. That's what we do in evangelism. We go back into the world and we reach somebody who's been taken from God, who's following the enemy and lost, and we, we rescue them. And bring them back to Jesus. We are called to go into these places, live dangerously and risk takers boldly for Jesus. I came across this uh, speech that a pastor gave one time to a a group of college graduates. And I want to read it to you because it's so challenging. 22-year-old college graduates, but it's for the church today. Quit living as if the purpose of life is to arrive safely at death. Set God-sized goals. Pursue God-ordained passions. Go after a dream that's destined to fail unless there's divine intervention. Keep asking questions. Keep making mistakes. Keep seeking God. Stop pointing out problems and become a part of a solution. Stop repeating the past and start creating the future. Stop playing it safe and start taking risks. Expand your horizons. Accumulate experiences. Enjoy the journey. Find every excuse you can to celebrate everything you can. Live like today is the first day and the last day of your life. 
Don't let what's wrong with you keep you from worshiping what's right with God. Burn sinful bridges. Blaze new trails. Don't let fear dictate your decisions. Take a flying leap of faith. Don't uh, quit holding back. Quit holding out. Go all in with God. Go all out for God. What a challenge for the church today. You see, we're really called to play offense, not defense, for God's kingdom. Faithfulness, men, hear me clearly. Faithfulness is not just protecting your home. It's storming the gates of the enemy. Faithfulness is taking back enemy territory that belongs to God. I think we've reduced righteousness. Sometimes in the church of Nazarene, we've reduced the word righteousness to be the absence of wrongness. But goodness is not the absence of badness. It's possible to do nothing wrong and still do nothing right. You remember the story that Jesus told. It was a parable. And he says, he says there was a man who owned a property and he was going to leave for a year. And he was going to give three servants money, uh, talents. That was, appears to be money in the story. And he gives them these three, these three servants, he gives talents, each one different amounts. You remember the story. To two, two of them, he says, I'm going to be gone for a year, and when I come back, I want you to give me back what I gave plus what you've earned with it. Two of those servants doubled what they had received. And when the master came back, they gave the master double what they had been given a year before. The third one, you remember, he took his talent and he buried it. And when the master came back, he unburied it and brought it back and he gave it to the master. The master said, you are a wicked servant. I want you to notice that that servant actually didn't do anything wrong. He just didn't do anything right. He could have been like the prodigal son who received the inheritance and went and spent it on wild living all year long and came back and when the master came back, he would have said, I have nothing for you. He didn't do anything wrong like that. He just buried it. He didn't do anything right with it. And when the master came back, he offered what he had. He had done nothing. We have uh, two daughters, Becca, who's 10, almost 11, and Sarah, who's 6, almost 7. And I want to tell you that I really like it when they don't do anything wrong. But I love it when my girls do something right. It's possible to do nothing wrong, but still do nothing right. I told you that our church, uh, Church of Nazarene, is currently serving in a creative access country, a Muslim country, where it's illegal for our people to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And about six months ago, in this country, uh, the government discovered that we were doing a kids' club And uh, we were teaching kids about Jesus, and some of those kids were Muslim kids that by their own desire and the parents' desire were brought to our kids' club. And they would get food and education, and we would also share about Jesus. And the government found out, and they came, and they shut down our building, Church of the Nazarene's building, in that city six months ago. Our leaders there had every right to come to me and say, you know, Pastor Scott, it's tough here. Uh, We've done our best. We've tried to help the Church of Nazarene come into this country and share. But it's not like America. And we're not allowed to be here. It's dangerous to do this. We've tried. We've been found out. And it's over. 
We're just going to make sure that our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren all know Jesus. They could have done that with us. But your leaders in the church of Nazarene in that country didn't do that. Here's what they did. The pastor of the church is a woman. She came to me and she said, here's what we're going to do. On Saturdays, I'm going to preach a message to six of our leaders from the church on Saturday that I would have preached on Sunday if the building had been open. And those six leaders are going to open their apartments all across this city and invite the church and invite their neighbors to come into their apartments. And those six leaders are going to preach the same message that I would have preached on Sunday. And so today, instead of having one location in that city, we now have six locations where the message is being given. Instead of backing down into a defensive position, these leaders said, no, we're called by God to do this. We're going to live boldly and courageously and risk-taking, and we're going to go into this community and share the name of Jesus with these people. We all have moments in our life, and really it's not one moment that, that makes a difference. There's many moments in our life where we're confronted with God's call on our life. It's not all to become a missionary or a pastor, although some of you could be called to that. It is, it is a call where God says, I want you to do this for me. And in those moments when that call happens, it's a little scary. I understand. It's more comfortable to stay back where we feel most at home. But God calls us to step out in those moments. And I would say that those moments come and it, you don't really have a long time to make the decision. You usually have about 10 or 20 seconds where you have to decide, am I going to give God everything? Am I completely surrendered to his will in my life? And will I trust him to do this? Maybe 20 seconds of insane courage. I think it took about 20 seconds of insane courage for Peter, one of the 12 disciples, who was with 11 other disciples in a boat on a stormy night, to decide he was going to step out of the boat. He didn't Notice he didn't turn around and say, guys, I'm about to do something really, really scary. I'm going to step out of this boat and walk on water, but I don't want to do it by myself, so would you guys come with me because it's scary. I want to be with other people. No, Peter saw Jesus walking on the water in the middle of a storm, and his heart leaped, and he said, Jesus, if that's you, call me out onto the water, which I would say is a really good way to find out if God wants you to do something. Jesus, if that's you calling me, call me out on the water and I'll step out. And Peter, on that stormy night, stepped over the side of a boat. And as far as I know, there have been two people in the history of the world that have walked on water, Jesus and Peter. And Peter, I don't know how long it went, 10 feet, 20 feet before he sunk. And everybody always talks about that. And we as pastors can be pretty tough on Peter. He looked away, he saw the storm and sank. He lost his faith. But I want you to remember that there were 11 disciples that night who witnessed a miracle. And there was one disciple who experienced a miracle. He actually stepped out of the boat and walked on water. I imagine it took about 20 seconds of insane courage for David, who was a little boy at the time, to come down into that valley where there was a battle going on between Israel and the Philistines. And there was this huge giant out in the middle. And he learned what had happened. This giant was willing to fight one person, and whoever won, the other side would have to surrender to that person. And David was just a little boy, and there was a hill full of Israelites, soldiers. None of them would fight him. 
David didn't take long. I imagine in his mind he thought, I'm sick and tired of that ugly Philistine giant speaking badly about my God. I'm not going to listen anymore. I'm going to fight him. And in a moment, 20 seconds of courage, he said, I'm going to fight that man and I'm going to kill him. I imagine it took about 20 seconds of insane courage for that old woman that one day in the temple. It was a day during Jesus' life. She came to the temple and she gave her offering that day. Two coins. You remember the story? It appears that Jesus was teaching his disciples. And while he was teaching, he stops in the middle of the little message he was giving. And he says, did you hear that? See, when people gave their, t- their tithe, their offerings, during that time, they didn't write a check or put money into a, a nice plush plate. They brought their money, which was changed, and they dumped it into a clay pot. And so when you would give your offering in that day and you were a rich person, you would dump it in, and it would go, and everybody would notice, and they would say, wow, did you hear that? That person really gave a lot of money. And they had the reward. And Jesus was over here, and he said, stop, did you you hear that? No one had heard anything, but the ears of God heard it. And Jesus said, that woman over there gave more than everyone else here today because she gave all that she had. Now, when I pastored in Houston, it never happened to me. I cannot imagine how I would have felt if a maybe an 80-year-old woman would have come into my office and sat down across from me and said, Pastor Scott, um, I want to give everything I own to God through this local church so we can reach more people. I probably would have said, uh, what exactly do you mean by everything? And, and if she said to me, well, um, I'm going to empty my checking account and empty my savings account, empty my 401k, that's now a 201k, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sell my house and I'm going to give everything. I'm not going to keep anything back. I'm going to give it all to God through this local church. I have to tell you, I probably would have argued with her. I would have said, what are you going to eat tomorrow if you do that? Where are you going to live? I I say this to say that if you live the way that I'm encouraging you to live this morning, risk-taking, courageous, bold, there may be good Christian people who come alongside you and say, don't live that crazy. Why are you trying to be so radical in your life? What you're doing is not safe. They'll mean well. But are we willing to step out? Over the years, many times in America, I remember uh, people coming, a group of people coming and saying, we want to remove from the dollar bill, in God we trust. And the church around America would step up, Christians everywhere would step up and say, no, this is who we are as Americans. We're not going to let you remove, in God we trust, off of that bill. And rightfully so. But many of those same Christians weren't living by what was on that dollar bill and even giving their full 10% tithe to their local church. When are we going to live like risk takers who say, I trust God with everything. I'm all in. I'm going to give him everything. I'm not holding back anymore. When he calls me to do something, I'm going to do it even if it doesn't make sense. This is the church. 
This is who we're called to be. I have some questions for you this morning in closing. What difficult decision do you need to make today? God's been telling you something. You've been fighting back, holding back, and not giving Him everything. What difficult decision do you have to make today? What tough conversation do you need to have today? He's told you to speak to somebody, and it's time. What crazy risk do you need to take today? He's put it on your heart. You thought, I can't do it. It's impossible. He's told you, do it. What crazy risk do you need to take? I want to say to you, stop playing it safe. Take a risk in the name of Jesus and watch God do miracles. Oswald Chambers, many of you have read him. Uh, He preached uh, back in the late 19th century uh, to pastors. And his sermons were pulled out. His wife took parts of his sermons and he made a little devotional guide that, that we read today as Christians. Uh, along with our devotions called My Utmost for His Highest. Many of you have read that. Oswald Chambers, here's what he said. Only one out of an entire crowd is daring enough to invest his or her faith in the character of God. Let me say it again. Only one out of an entire crowd is daring enough to risk his or her faith in the character of God. My question this morning is which one of us? Are you daring enough to risk who God is and what He's told you to do? I want to be that one. Let's be that one together. Let's step out and say, yes, Jesus, I'll do what you're asking me to do today. Amen. 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 Thank you, Scott. Thank you.